It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. All right, what's up, Blackalites, and welcome to another edition of Blazin'. As always, I am your host, Bobby Black. You know, as you're all aware by now, we're celebrating Hash Month here on Blazin' uh, with a different hashish expert as our guest each week in July. Uh, that's, of course, because uh, 710 is the now universally recognized number for uh, hash being the word oil upside down for all of those who you, of you who don't know. Uh, so we're celebrating Hash Month all month here on Blazin'. Uh, this week's guest is another legend in the hash community. For over 20 years, he's been a prominent cannabis patient, grower, hash maker, and entrepreneur up in Vancouver, Canada. He's the owner of Fresh Headies, an online store that sells hash making accessories, including the incredibly popular Bubble Helped Create. He's also the host of Hash Church, the esteemed online chat show that brings connoisseurs, educators, and students together every Sunday morning on his YouTube channel, Bubble Man's World, to discuss all things hash. Please join me in welcoming to the show Marcus Richardson, or as he's better known to the cannabis community, man. Marcus, thanks for blazing with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Bobby. Always having me blazing. Cool, man. Well, you have uh, quite an impressive uh, resume, I must say. Uh, you've you've kind of been all over the place over the past 20 years, uh, doing all kinds of things in the cannabis community and activism and growing and hash making, all that good stuff. Um Tell us a little about your background, how you got started out uh, in in cannabis and uh, just in general. You know, for me, it was very reminiscent of Dave Chappelle's half-baked movie when they all smoke that joint together and they go inside and he's like, Abba Zabba, you my only friend. For me, that was my first cannabis experience. I was 14. I smoked a joint with my friend Steve McAvoy, you know, behind the BFI can, behind the the corner store down the street from my house. And it was like we, you know, it, it's reminiscent, uh, not quite as intense as um, entering the dream world that Albert Hoffman talked about on his famous bicycle ride. But it was dreamy <laughs> and it was a little bit of a different world. And I embraced it immediately, uh, you know, went from never having seen herb to smoking a joint to buying an ounce to getting half pounds to getting cuffed 10 packs like it it moved quick for me let's just say <laughs> wow yeah i started pretty early with cannabis myself around 11 uh, got turned on to it and liked it right away and and but my build up was a little more gradual a little slower like i started smoking more frequently as high school went on uh concerts and and with my buddies in the park and stuff and slowly built up i didn't really get to the pounds level especially not uh right away not until many years later until i was uh, high times was i exposed to the, that kind of volume let's say um what about hash i mean you're known mostly for hash particularly bubble hash what what, what was your introduction to hash because i know that as uh, in my youth in brooklyn you know hash just wasn't around especially back you know in the, in the 80s and stuff like if you did find a piece of hash, it was something dry and hard and black, and you didn't even know if it what it was, where it came from, or what it was. And it wasn't until I went to Amsterdam for the Cannabis Cup that that world got open to me, and it it, it blew my mind. It just completely changed my life. 
I'm definitely there with you. You know, I was an early cannabis cup goer. 1995 was my first year having the booth there on the third floor of the PAX party house next to jammed in between Jack and Eagle Bill, like epic, epic way to start the experience. And and I went through for the next 20 years and did them. Uh, But it wasn't exactly Amsterdam that, that turned me on to hash. I am from Canada. I was originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is the center of the province just above North Dakota. And so we had access. I mean, obviously, a lot of hash still to this day comes into the ports over on that side. Quebec and Montreal are known for hash um, from Afghanistan and Pakistan and India. And then when I got a little bit older, you know, when I was about 18, 19, I met a friend who was going to Nepal and he would come back with little bits of, of Nepali finger hash. And I got exposed on my trips out to Vancouver to bricks of the Lebanese, both the blonde and the red. And of course, Moroccan uh, made its way throughout uh, throughout the country as well. So there were all these sort of access points. And I liked it just the same way I kind of liked the the oils back in the day that people would make as well, some from herbs, some from hash. But it didn't really pique my interest. And, and, I, and once again, I really would have to say it was 1995 at the Cannabis Cup, the first time I smoked a hash that liquefied into, into you know, a liquid and just melted right through the screen. And that was with uh, Rob uh, Clark, who was a good friend of Sam the Skunk Man's. And I hadn't met Sam the Skunk Man yet, but Rob had this stuff they were calling the 50 because it was like 50% THC. It was dry sifted uh, resin heads. And I just never seen anything like it. And, and, you know, what Rob would say was what Sam used to say and still says to this day, which was, if it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. (laughs) And that actually became about four years later when I started the bubble bag company. I used that as the motto. And that's really how I ended up meeting the Skunk Man because he emailed me and he said, do you know who who first said that, absolutely, I do, and I respect you, and if you want me to not use that motto, no problem. And he was like, no, no, go ahead, just thanks for giving me the props. <laughs> that was the journey. Yeah, for the, for the, ben- for the benefit of our listeners who, who aren't super familiar with uh, Rob Clark or with uh, uh, Skunk Man, just give us a quick little, uh, like, about who well, they are and, who, and your relationship with them. These are huge, huge mentors. Uh, over the years, I got to know these guys really well. Rob, of, cor- of course, is one of our scholars in the cannabis community, an incredible, you know, uh, author and and co- co- collector of information from marijuana botany uh, to his more recent one, Hashish, uh, both highly influenced by Skunk Man Sam as well and the work that they did together th- uh, with Hortifarm. Just they've been doing this for so long. They've done so much that people, you know, 20 years later, are like, we're going to do this. And it's like, oh, yeah, they're like, you should do that. We did that 20 years ago and it was awesome. That's literally kind of <laughs> how, how I look at them. I often say that, you know, combined those two guys have forgotten more about cannabis than the majority of us collectively know. I always give them props. I look at them as mentors and huge inspirations because when I saw that hash melt through the screen, when I saw the person who smoked it fall down, and when I heard Rob say, if it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble, I needed that in my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're talking about uh, 20 years ago and going to the cup back in 95. My first cup was 94. I went pretty much every single year with the high times. And so uh, I remember I remember those PAX Party House uh, expos with Eagle Bill and, and everything you're talking about. And that was my first exposure. Uh, like I said, my first exposure to hash was Amsterdam in general, but just being exposed to those luminaries, Rob Clark and Eagle Bill. And, you know, it was it was 
unbelievable as a young man who had grown up loving weed, but hadn't traveled in, I guess, as cool circles as you did with access to the cool bricks and things that you seem to be able to, you know, it, for me, it was, you know, like I said, life changing. Uh, and I've only learned more and more every year I went back to Amsterdam and developed more of those, those relationships. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, Bobby, the this constant complaining and bitching and moaning that people have for uh, for high times, you know, myself, Todd McCormick, a few others, we're constantly reminding them, listen, what those guys did was they gave us a platform to get together. They gave us a place. Amsterdam existed and allowed it to happen, but it was high times that made it happen. They were the ones that brought us all there. They were the ones that would ensure people from all over the world would come. It would be a great crowd. And every year it was, you know, it just, it was, I, I miss those original cannabis cups in Amsterdam. Those were, uh, that was a really unique time. It was special. It was magical. And yeah, and I agree. And, and, you know, uh, high times has obviously changed and, and, uh, in a lot of ways over the years, and it's certainly n nothing of what it used to be. So uh, we'll kind of leave it at that. But uh, those old days of high times, man, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade them for anything. No, um, you guys did a great job. But uh, let's get. I want to get back to you. Uh, you know, talking about your your career and your history. Um, I know that early on, you uh, you kind of started out as a hemp uh, farmer, did you not? Yeah, we kind of started this hemp activism thing. We were in um, Manitoba in the prairies, and that was one of our strengths was that we had, you know, these two million uh, beautiful acres of, of, of good working land, at least, that you can farm on. Uh, it made sense to us, and it was really meeting Jack, you know, being right next to him at the cup in 95 and we met Jack in 94, 95. My partners went in 94 and 95 and I, I believe it was in 95 we met John Stahl who was an expat American living in the Ukraine and he was friends with uh, Goro Borotko from the Institute of Bass Fibers uh, and these guys were hemp farmers for the last 70 plus years. The DEA had come in and told them to get rid of THC or get rid of hemp. And they figured out a really unique way using litmus in the field to find high THC plants or THC that was above the limits they were looking for. It would turn purple on the paper and they would pull the plant and they did this for about 20 years. And they produced Zolotonosha, this extremely low THC variety that still produced beautiful fiber and amino acid rich seed. And so it was through our relationship with John, he had gone to the Cannabis Cup. Once again, high times, right? He goes to the Cannabis Cup thinking he's going to meet like hemp farmers. And it is not what he thought it was, let's just say. He was mildly disappointed at, at what it was. But then he met us. We were these Manitoba hemp guys. We had this real big interest. We had Jack's book that we were freshly loaded up with on knowledge and we started approaching our ministers you know one of the things in the book that jack had was the billion dollar crop the 1932 popular mechanics advertisement that was the first time billion and dollar had ever been used in an economic statement well we bumped it up to the trillion dollar crop and we approached our minister of finance and our minister of um, agriculture and about eight months later, we had a license to grow hemp in our province, which was the first time in 73 years that it had been grown there. Wow. A couple, couple years later, we got the law changed from experimental, which basically means you can't profit from it, to commercial. And that started the entire sort of profit uh, of hemp in Canada. My partners from back then actually sold their company just a couple years ago now, Manitoba Harvest, uh, for $133 million. Wow. 
You know, yeah. you know I, I remember back uh, back in the old days to go back again to high times. We, we even had started a new magazine called Hemp Times back in the day because of the hemp bubble. There was this huge hemp bubble where suddenly all these hemp companies sprung up and they were all making clothes and hacky sacks and and body products and all this other stuff. And it was like this whole amazing, you know, uh, industry springing up. And then it kind of popped the bubble. It kind of imploded. And, and a lot of those companies, the majority of them didn't really survive. It's nice to know that some of them, you know, really did make it through and are still out there and, and, and doing good work. Well, you know, out of the 50,000 commercial products that we lauded about hemp, you know, maybe one has been been put into effect, which is the food product, the oil and the seed. Uh, that's where the value is in that. There's no infrastructure for a lot of these other products. And the infrastructure to actually use hemp on the mass scale that we could be using it, I suspect, would be worldwide in the billions of dollars. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, all right. So after uh, after the hemp, uh, after you were working with hemp, you ended up leaving that uh, situation and you en- and you went on to become a grower. Uh, and that was for the BC Compassion Care. Yeah, the BC Compassion Club. Exactly. Hillary Black, <coughs> potentially a long lost sibling of yours. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, one of my dearest friends. She's just an amazing person. She was inspired by the corrals down in California and Todd McCormick and others like them uh, to open up a BC Compassion Club here in 1997. Uh, I moved here basically the year before, right after we got the hemp growing. I came out here. I was growing in Manitoba already. It was a little bit sketchy. Bible Belt, definitely go to jail um, if you get caught. For instance, my mentor, Ron Hickey, who was really the reason I got exposed to a lot of this stuff that I did at a young age because he was just so brave and willing to share that information, knowing that it was good, even in a time that we were told that it was not good and it was, in fact, very bad. He was able to really sort of uh, kickstart my cannabis experience uh, back in the day for, for certain. Cool. And then so when exactly was it that you transitioned from uh, working with the uh, Compassion BC Compassion Club into – creating, forming your company, Fresh Headies and the Bubble Bags. Well, this was an interesting story, and I think it'll be an inspiration to the listeners because, you know, people are always looking for that lottery ticket. They're always looking for that uh, that next big opportunity. And what I'm here to tell you is that opportunity is not going to come to you in the form of a winning lottery ticket, but it'll come to you in the form of an obstacle that seems so devastating that you think life cannot go on any further. And so for me, I was rocking and rolling. I was brokering cannabis on levels that few will ever see in their lives in Vancouver, had the penthouse apartment overlooking the the Stanley Park. I had the 5,000 square foot mansion in West Vancouver on the water with multiple hot tubs. And I was helping the Compassion Club as much as I could. Well, I ended up getting in trouble helping the Compassion Club. I got pulled over at a roadblock with about 16 and a half pounds of herb uh, and about $6,000 cash. And it came to the point where um, the civil disobedience that I was practicing, helping the club, growing weed, selling weed was kind of like got to the point where I couldn't do that anymore. And it was somewhat devastating to me. I, I was really good at it and I didn't know what else I could possibly do. Uh, and so my wife just kind of said, you know, is there, is it possible you can do something with cannabis that, that maybe wouldn't, wouldn't get us put in jail? <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'll try, I'll try, you know, I'll, I'll try to figure it out. And that year, um, I got busted in 1996. Well, I guess I got busted in 1998, which was the year that the isolator bags came out. And I had I was friends with Mila at the time, and I came to 
the Amsterdam on a trip to find out if I could become a distributor for isolator bags because I had tried them a couple of times. I wasn't overly impressed with the material that came out. But then breeder Steve came over one day with the shishkaberry from his yellow Afghan line. He had two lines of, of the shishkaberry, a red Afghan and a yellow Afghan. And the yellow line was just so amazing. We ran it through her two-bag kit and came out with this just incredible quality resin that you just very rarely will see come out of two bags. Uh, to give you an idea, bubble bags are now an eight-bag set, so we've come a long way. But I, I just, I didn't even want to make my own bags. I wanted to just resell the bags that already existed, and so I went and talked to Mila. Unfortunately, it was a very bad day. She was in a very bad mood. We did not have a good conversation. Uh, it finished with her yelling at me, calling me a silly American, which I, I, I told her, listen, if you're going to call me a silly American, call me a silly North American because I'm from Canada. <laughs> and uh, so she was just having a bad day. But her bad day really gave my very quiet, shy, like super quiet wife. When I came home all bummed out that we weren't going to – this wasn't going to be our opportunity. She said to me, uh, well, why don't we make our own bags? What, can't we just make our own? And I, I looked at her like she was from another planet. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I don't know how to sew. And she's like, well, I'll learn to sew. And she literally started sewing the bubble bags. A couple of months later, March of 1999, about seven months after the isolator bags came out, bubble bags were born. And there's a whole crazy story about all that because, you know, that was a lot of people thought I was I had stolen the idea from Mila. And of course, Years later, I found out Mila didn't invent the bags. It was this old hash smuggler by the name of Eldon, who you may have met back in the day in Amsterdam. He was an amazing man. You definitely smoked hash that he smuggled into the country, I can promise you. Yeah. And he, he invented the bags. Basically, he was over at Mila's. And in 1997, Reinhard Delp, who has a machine called the Ice Cold Extractor. It wasn't the first time water hash was ever made, but it was the first time it was made with ice and a machine. And so he came to Amsterdam in 97. He, he cut a deal with Mila. Um, they ended up um, – she had this machine and she invited over Eldon and Mark Rose. Mark Rose is another old-time Amsterdam freak that lived in Nepal and did a bunch of different things with Eldon. And he manufactured the first isolator bag. And he also came up with the name Isolator. And it was Eldon who looked at the machine and said, two five-gallon bags made of nylon with screen bottoms, and you've got the same thing. And that was really the birth of the bag. So for a very long time in the community, I was looked down upon. I was looked down that I had ripped off uh, Mila for this idea. And lots of bad energy in Amsterdam at those cups over the years from people yeah. you know, loving Mila and hating. You had to have heard it. You know, you had to oh, have yeah. heard it before. Yeah. And then what did I do? I started Legends of Hash and I invited Mila every year, you know, because that's who I am. I don't want to. And when I found out who I actually had done wrong was Reinhard Delp. Um, I worked out a deal with him and paid him six figures for the lease of his patent, and now I also lease his patent to sell my final product, Bubble Hash, down in places like California. So I, I know how to do business the right way. It was unfortunate the way it happened in those beginning days because I swear I must have taken a, a full decade of people thinking that I had ripped off uh, the, the bags. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I heard it for a long time, believe me. Sure. Um and uh, I didn't really know you at the time. As a matter of fact, I don't think I really got to know you until Legends of Hash. I had met you uh, in passing, you know, here sure. and there. But but yep. it wasn't until, like, I was I was fortunate enough to be invited to that amazing event uh, years, years ago uh, while at High Times that uh, yep. I got to – you know, get to know you a little better. And, and I always got a great vibe from you and, and never, you know, I started to hear the other side of it, basically. 
Yeah, well, that was, you know, even people that were her family members and stuff and, and would come over after years, you know, I, one of the ladies that came over at my, I think it might have been her daughter, a really nice woman. She came over and she said, I, she said, listen, I'm not going to deceive you. I'm from Mila's camp. I just need to know, you know, the, the way they talk over there, you are a monster. And I just have to talk to you for five minutes and find out if you are. Well, she talked to me for about two and a half hours. This was in Dortmund, Germany at the Cannabis Conference, probably in like, 2000 2001 and uh, it was nice that was the beginning of kind of like okay like you know because it's a small community and when it turns into this sort of you know oh that seed guy doesn't like that seed guy and that it's like no like we sell the same things we should have booths next to each other like we're the hash people you know we're promoting there's too much interpersonal beef in our in our community it's sad (laughs) yeah there's no doubt about it but you know what this plant has this incredible ability to Pull forth people that require healing. And so, you know, maybe that's what we're all doing. We're just going through our healing together. Yeah. So you so you so Mila's Mila's cool with you now, right? You guys have buried the hatchet? Yeah, I mean, to a degree, you know, she still has her history of things and I have a different history of things. But I we agree I definitely don't go around saying, Oh, that's a lie. That no, that's her truth. And she has her truth, and I have my truth. And yeah, I definitely, uh, she's been invited on to Hash Church. I, I think of her as a legend in the community, someone that's been around for a long time. And uh, yeah, it was hard, man, to break, you know, she's also the queen of Amsterdam, not just the queen of Hash. So for <laughs> me for me to go for 10 years every year and have that energy that was kind of like, I mean, she would phone editors that I wrote for, magazine articles for, and like flip out on them for like an hour and a half straight about how I stole this concept from her. So it was it was like really heavy, heavier than anyone could possibly imagine for 10 solid years. Wow. I I applaud you for uh, being able to weather that storm. I know that uh, hell hath no fury, as they say. Uh, and Mila is certainly uh, quite quite a, a fighter. She is she is a strong woman, but uh, I'm I happy to respect that about her. You know, I do. Yeah. I respect that she was fighting for what her what was hers, and I respect her hustle. But I was just like, unfortunately, I was the guy in the position that was like, oh my god, Mila hates me, and I'm coming to Amsterdam every year. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy. I'm happy that things are in a better place for you and her now. Um, well, you know wh- what? She's taught me to um, bury my own sort of um, resentments or anger and forgive people because uh, what I learned from all that was all I wanted was forgiveness. All I wanted was for everything to be good. And so what I've been able to do in my life is I've been able to do that for people that I feel have done the thing that I did to Mila, who they've done to me. So it's it's it was a really good learning lesson. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Right on. Well, we're going to take a quick break uh, for a quick word from our sponsors, but don't go anywhere because we're going to be right back with more from Bubble Man here on Blazin. You're listening to Blazin with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the hosts of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing Cannabis Radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. 
Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? The cannabis industry continues to grow in Massachusetts. Canicon Boston is where you learn everything and meet everyone in the cannabis industry. Canicon Boston is coming to Heinz Convention Center July 13th through the 15th. Get tickets right now at Canicon.org. This will be the biggest cannabis event in Boston all year. Meet over 3,000 professionals in the cannabis industry at Canicon Boston July 13th through the 15th. Get your tickets and all access passes now at Canicon.org. The cannabis industry is booming. Don't miss out. Canicon.org. Get your tickets today. Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise to guide you through the process. Blazing with Bobby Black. All right, and we are back here on Blazin. Uh, my guest this week is uh, Marcus Richardson, also known as Bubble Man, creator of the Bubble Bags and owner of Fresh Headies. How are you doing, Marcus? I heard you say something about doing a, a bong rip. I did just do a bong rip. You <laughs> caught me almost half uh, hitting a little full melt dry sift. Nice, nice. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, uh, as far, as someone who's known predominantly for bubble and water hash, uh What's your? How do you weigh in on on flour and on other forms of hash? Do you smoke everything? Uh, are you anti? Uh, what's your What's your feelings on that? Well, I I'm a firm believer that oil is oil, mostly just from the Rob Clark Skunkman Sam through hashish micro encapsulated resin glands. When we melt them off with processes like rosin or chemical extractions, I call that oil doesn't mean it's any less than hash, but hash to me has the fibrous mat that the cannabinoids are cooked into existence inside the trichome. It has all of these things that get pressed out or, or left behind when we make oil. I, at this point in my life, am anti-nothing with cannabis. I fight for more and never fight against anything that already exists. It makes no sense. Uh, people love oil. People love chemical extractions, butane and propane and hexane and uh, 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 alcohols, isopropanols, Everclears. They love rosin. Uh, and I think that people should have access to all of these things in the, in the most safest, uh, effective and cheap possible ways. Uh, I personally promote, I won't call it solventless anymore because, you know, with the work that we've been doing with the terpenes, terpenes are hydrocarbons, butane is a hydrocarbon, terpenes are latent in cannabis, which means flowers themselves aren't even solventless. Uh, so <laughs> there's really no such thing as a solventless hash. Well, what would you, what would you, what moniker would you attribute to BHO and, and things of that nature? Well, I think that the thing that people are trying to say when they're saying uh, solventless or ke no chemical, like even you can't even say it's chemical free. It's like, well, they're chemicals. That's what the hydrocarbons yeah. are. Um, you can't escape it. But, you know, people, if they want to say this was not made with petrochemicals, you know, maybe like to, to, to this is removed from the petrochemical industry. 
um, th- that might be one way of saying it, but it's just not accurate to say it's solventless yeah. or that it's, you know, cause it's, cause terpenes are hydrocarbons. Yeah. So, so petro free, maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah. but, but purpose, but personally I'm saying like when you, when you go to smoke, uh, if someone offers you, you know, BHO, now I'm not saying you fight against them. I'm not saying you're, you're no, out, no. outspokenly, uh, against them. But if someone offers you BHO, are you like, Oh, thanks. Or are you like, no, nah, I'll stick to my, no, I don't generally take it only because the, my confidence levels in, you know, my friend Indra was one of the first people to release the BHO method on eroid.org back in 1999. I think he did it. And right after he did it, he he felt very bad because he is like a, a chemist and a scientist and a, and a very brilliant man. And here he is producing the oil the right way with serious closed loop systems without the use of vac ovens because the reactor itself is where you're supposed to remove all the, the, the fuel because the fuel gets metered into the tanks and then it gets metered out, which means – it goes through a meter that tells you how much went in and how much goes out. It's really easy to re- get all your gas back out when you do it that way. When you do it incorrectly, the way most people have been doing it, you have to buy multi-thousand dollar vac ovens and then vacuum out the terpene content, which is why you know, people are creating terpene traps for those vacuums because they know the terpenes are being volatized and evaporated in those vac ovens. And with what we've learned in the last 10 years that terpenes are the modulators of the cannabinoids. They are they are sort of the deciding factor on the, you know, the medicinal or recreational benefit that you get from that particular profile. Right, absolutely. And then, so what about what about flowers? I mean, obviously, you're not anti-flower, but I have heard you say that, and I'm I may be misquoting you, but something like uh, what you call the pizza pizza box analogy that herb is the messenger and bubble. Uh, yeah. So. Elaborate on that for us. Yeah, well, that's an analogy. I've been people have always asked me, and I don't try to convince people not to smoke joints. I mean, I have a company in Jamaica. My friends are never going to stop smoking joints ever, <laughs> and I don't want them to. You know, cannabis is wonderfully enjoyed in joints. It just got to the point with me, the way I am, the way my focus is. And you, you know, you asked earlier, how did you get into hashish? It's like it started like this. I started smoking bud, and it was like bud with maybe some seeds and some stock and some thick rolling papers with glue on them. And that went from like, let's pull out the seeds. Then it was like, let's pull out the stock. Then it was like, let's get thinner papers with less glue. Let's get papers with no glue. Let's get special papers that are made of rice or hemp. Uh, And then slowly but surely the paper was gone. It was like, let's take the bud and actually isolate the active ingredient off of it because the bud itself is made out of cellulose and something else that's made out of cellulose are pizza boxes. So it's kind of a messenger. It's this, it's our pizza box. It comes to us and it doesn't mean you can't burn the box. It's it's not like an insult in that sense, but I've had many friends say, listen, that's not a very good analogy. And I said, listen, bud is made out of cellulose and so is pizza boxes. How is that not an amazing analogy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, so you start, you started talking just now about, uh, some of the extraction techniques. Talk to us a little about, uh, your bags and how they work and, and what is it that makes, uh, ice hash special and different from, uh, dry sift or other forms of hash? Well, with water hash, keep in mind prior to water hash, there was a very, very, very small percentage of people on the planet that could isolate glandular trichome heads to a 90 plus percent ratio. Uh, Most dry sift, for instance, was probably around 20 percent heads, maybe 10. 
maybe 30 if it was like some really nice stuff that came off a single screen that you trimmed over. You might even get it up to 40 or 50, but nowhere would you get it up to 90 or 99. And so Waterhash changed the game because Waterhash with ice – the, the method is very simple. The glandular trichomes, first of all, there's three of them that we're trying to generally acquire off of cannabis. You've got your capitate stalked, which is the, the connoisseur trichome. You've got your sessile stalked, a little bit shorter, about half the height of a capitate stalked tri, uh, glandular trichome. And then you have a third type, which is a bulbous. Bulbous are uh, single cell stands that they sit on, so they they look flush with the leaf. They grow on the plant uh, from day one. The first uh, set of leaves, the true set of leaves, not the cotyledon, the round ones, but the first true set of serrated leaves, which is called the epicotyl, uh, it has glandular trichomes growing on it immediately, and the types are bulbous. What we found is, what I've found, and this could be you know, disproven, but it's, this is my own truth, not a scientific fact that when running high CBD cultivars and we extract the, 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 the two main trichomes that will extract with mechanical screens, whether using bubble hash or dry sift are the capitate stalked and the sessile. Those are the tall ones. The real short one sticks to this, to the leaf. And it's why when you make oil with a product, you'll often see 20 plus percent returns because like eight plus percent of the heads on the plant are these bulbous heads. I've seen when people run high CBD cultivars and get very small amounts of dry sift or bubble hash, taking the same thing and running it through an oil extraction, whether a butane or a propane or a, a rosin, uh, you will see the yields increase exponentially. So these, these types of heads, the bulbous, don't really extract with mechanical sifting, but the, the capitate stocked, and the sessile, they do. And the reason they do is simple. The glands are made of, uh, the wax membrane obviously is made of wax. It becomes brittle in the ice. Everything's floating in the water, but when we mix the mixture, um, the ice is smashing back and forth in these very delicate heads because obviously the taller they are, the more likely they are to snap and break, uh, just like a tall tree in a windstorm. And they break off, and because of their oil-latent um, bodies, they're so thick with cannabinoids and oils that they're still affected by gravity. And this is the magic of water hash, the, the freezing of the wax membrane, and then when it breaks, the sinking of the gland head. This basically made everyone overnight an expert hash maker. Like everyone overnight, if you had the material and you followed the simple instructions, you are going to be able to create – now, bubble bags don't create quality – they unveil quality if it's there through purity. Sure. It's all about the starting material. Um, but tell me about the different uh, – you know, you're talking about the different head sizes, the different uh, gland types. Uh, tell us about the different screens, the different uh, screen levels that you have in the bags and how those serve to process the hash in, in, in an effective way. Sure. Well, Waterhash started out as a two-bag system, and the one bag was a 200-micron uh, screen, very large, much larger than a, of a screen than you'd ever use for dry sifting. For instance, if you bought yourself a Riot box or any of these bubble boxes, Keef boxes, whatever, um, you would see about a 160 or a 150-micron screen to be the, the, the main top screen. So, 
the small screen was 70 microns, which was the catch. We figured out very early on that there was things passing through, so we added a 25 micron, a much smaller bag, and we realized that the hash that we were catching with that bag, although it wasn't of the highest quality, it was still a useful medicine. It could be put in joints. It didn't melt, so it was better for joints. It could be put into edibles, and there was still value there. Um, so the bags were originally 220, 73, and 25. And then I realized that the 73 micron had contaminant in it, little bits of leaf, little little things that I didn't want in there. I'd go under with my microscope and I'd see cystolith hairs, which are these little, you know, hairs that are, they're types of glandular trichomes apparently, but they are not glandular in any way. They just have a hair to the naked eye. They're what makes Keith look golden when really, you know, it's 80% contaminant. And so we added... Uh, after the 220, the 73, and the 25, we figured why don't we add a 190 bag just under the 220 and see if we can't capture things before they fall into the 73. Well, that eventually, you know, turned into a 160 bag, a 120 bag, a 90 bag, all in front of the 73, and then I, I added a 45 as well between the 25 because it was draining so slow. And that's how we came up with an eight-bag kit. It took about five, four or five years. Mark Rose, my manufacturer, who came up with the isolator name and uh, manufactured all the first isolator bags, uh, was a big part in helping me with that and has, you know, I always like to give him props. Uh, because he was a huge influence on coming up with the right numbers and the right screens. When nobody knows, you got to do the work. Yeah. So when you're talking about the different levels and you're talking about filtering out uh, contaminants, uh, isn't there an argument that possibly you're also filtering out elements that might be desirable in the sake of purity? Because I know when we had Frenchie uh, Cannoli on the show, he he said he he prefers uh, more full spectrum, what he called, you know, obviously full spectrum uh, hashish, uh, where less was filtered out, where you got more of the original uh, intent uh, and flavor of the plant. So do you feel like anything, you're losing anything uh, valuable by filtering it so, so uh, you know, finely? Well, no, because we don't lose anything. We just separate it. And then unlike Frenchie, we have the ability to create any blends that we want afterwards, including the blend that he's enjoying. Um, but when you, when you separate it out, you can do all the work you learn, you see, um, the science says that the thing, we're, when I say I'm filtering out contaminant, I'm talking about non-glandular material and from a hash smoker, um, that, that is more like along the Frenchie, um, mindset of like, uh, new school traditional aspects in the new school. So the the breaking of the gland heads and the uh, pressing and the rolling of the glands. I did that in the beginning quite a bit. Now I really prefer my micro-encapsulated resin heads to be intact. I like to be able to see them. And uh, from there, I can do any of the things I want to do with it, whether I want to press a little bit, whether I want to cure some. Uh, I always told people, if you separate them all out into these different kinds, these different uh, size glands, you will have the power to do anything afterwards. Now, with water hash, our problem is is that water is the universal solvent, so that it is still pulling. There's no there's no such thing, in my opinion, as a full profile or a full spectrum hash that's been made with water, because what's in the water? Like, what's that color? Why does it smell so good? What did you leach out into the water? If you've ever made water hash, uh, you've certainly seen that the water is not clear at the end of it. Uh, you've you've pulled out a bunch of things. If you want a full spectrum uh, uh, plant uh, resin hash, you would want to make it in a dry sift form. Now, keep in mind, Skunkman Sam and Rob and the inspiration to, to to what I've been teaching people, 
is not to collect all of the glands, but in the magical separating out of them, we found that certain ones are the most mature. And so bubble bags is one method of accessing um, gland heads based on their uh, micron diameter. The original method, which was come up with by Reinhard Delp, his ice cold extractor, it isolates based on maturity. So he's not using all of the screens. Instead, what he's doing is he's using a small mixer and then he's stopping and the first heads to fall off they fall through into this little pitcher of water and he filters them through a single screen. That would be a little bit closer to um, like a unique way of accessing heads, 73, 90, 45, because those heads could be a variety of sizes, but they came based on their maturity. They were the most easily broken off. So I, I applaud what Frenchie's doing. I applaud what Reinhardt's doing. I think the more the merrier, we should definitely um, fight for more and never fight against anything that exists already in the cannabis world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us a little about the bags themselves, like how, how uh, they're constructed and, and what makes them uh, so special. Well, you know, from very early on, after my wife, uh, the first bubble bags weren't that special. They were just really the concept and the idea. And Mark had his business fall through with Mila and saw me on the internet doing this thing. And he contacted me. I went out to Amsterdam and met with him at his apartment in the Lydza Plane and had some great meetings and really became uh, kind of partners there where he would become the manufacturer and I would become um, the um, reseller and marketer. And we always bought the highest quality materials that we could buy. And skimped. It was always like instead of going the route that he had just gone, which was like buying the cheapest material, the cheapest screen, the cheapest thread, we were – we were seeking out parachute thread that you thread a parachute with because parachute thread has special coatings that don't break down with water or weather over time. And if you're putting these bags in and out, 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 the, the thread would dissolve over time and the um, screens would fall off. The screen that is a very high quality screen that we buy out of Switzerland, you can't get it out of China. It's extremely expensive to the point where – you know, it was a hard decision for us to pick high integrity at the risk of trying to start a company that could potentially bankrupt us both. But we did it anyway. We went with the highest quality materials we we could find. And then I just warrantied it for life. I told people when you buy these bags, uh, they're warrantied for life. And then on top of that, I just answer every single person's question, Bobby, even if they don't have bubble bags. Anyone that asks me a hash making question, sometimes I'll spend 30 minutes answering the question. And I do it every day, like 50 to 100 times through a dozen social media outlets. I just feel the most important part of bubble bags is the fact that we back up our product with with information and we back up other people's products too because I want people to make great hash more than I want people to buy bubble bags. Yeah, that, uh, that's extremely uh, admirable, I must say. And, you know, we should that's a perfect segue to talk a little about your social media presence, because you've become uh, uh, quite a, an important influencer in the cannabis community online. Um, as we mentioned in the intro, you have a YouTube channel called Bubble Man's World. You have over 66,000 subscribers, hundreds of thousands of views, some some videos, even over over a million views. Um, and uh, one of the uh Shows that you do on your channel is a show called Hash Church, which takes place every Sunday, uh, and it's sort of a hash uh, expert uh, get-together. Tell us a little about how the channel developed and how you came up with the idea for Hash Church. 
It's a pretty cool story, actually. You know, uh, in 2012, a good friend of mine acquired a YouTube monetization company called On Air FM. And there's quite a few of these companies. Vivo is one and uh, Broadband is a really big one. And what these companies have done is they've recognized the value of ad revenue on YouTube, that people aren't watching their TVs anymore. They're not turning on their radios as much. They're, li- they're going to YouTube for content, whether it's a TV show, a skit, a song, whatever. They're on YouTube. So advertisers who would uh, want to advertise their product for those people who are watching these videos have gone to YouTube. And of course, a lot of people don't know this, but back in 2012, YouTube was pulling in about $14 billion a month in ad revenue. And so they would give half of that away or more to their content providers, these incredible partnerships. You could partner up with YouTube. And so I looked into it and my friend contacted me, said, listen, I have this company. I know you know Jamaica really well. Would it be cool if I sent you to Jamaica and you could talk to your reggae artist friends and see if they had an interest in getting paid for some of their music that maybe they haven't been getting paid for because – you know, if they got a great song and they get millions of views, you know, there's quite a bit of money that can be paid. It's like six to $12,000 per million views or something like that. And so I went to Jamaica. I met all these incredible artists. I did Rebel Salute that year. We interviewed every single person that played. We, you know, went back to Kingston and we stayed for weeks and I met with so many incredible reggae artists. Well, I came home, that company, you know, he ended up selling it a little while later and I just, it taught me so much that I thought, and I'm telling all these reggae artists, I'm telling old guys like Coco T and, you know, Toots and the Maytals and, uh, Richie Spice, just all these different guys. I'm like, listen, you guys have a bunch of different value here. Your value isn't just your music. Your value is that you're conscious and spiritual and people want to hear what you have to say because it's inspirational. So you could do a morning show on your channel and get a couple of hundred thousand hits and make 800 bucks. Like it's a no brainer, you know, uh, soldiers of jaw army. Well, they fought it and fought it and fought it. And they were like, oh, we don't want video commercials on our, on our videos. And I'm like, yeah, but you're throwing away hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wouldn't it be cooler to suck up having a few videos on your channel and then donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to something cool that you like instead of just letting that money dissipate? They signed up right away. (laughs) And so I learned from that that I could do the same thing. I was like, I could probably get paid from YouTube. I mean, I'm not a rock star and I don't have you know, incredible talent playing mu- musical instruments, but I've got information and I could start doing some things. And that was really, you know, the original inspiration was that I would try and get myself, you know, like a $5,000 monthly stipend from YouTube. And, you know, I got myself up to about six to 800 US dollars a month. That was in the heyday of it. It's probably, they've changed the algorithms. It's probably down to about 400 now. Still something. It allows me to uh, have a little bit of money to put into microphones and cameras and stuff and, and, and put the channel, you know, get it to that next level. But that was it. Just started pumping out the information, pumping out photography, high-end macro photography mixed in with the videos. Picked up a drone to add some of the, you know, I did not know anything about editing or sound or any videography. Like suddenly you have to learn all of these skills. Yeah. And I'm like a bit of a perfectionist, so I want... I'm like, oh, I'd rather just have someone who was better than this at me helping me. But it's been kind of a one-man show. Yeah, I, I applaud you, man. I've been trying to do something similar, you know, trying to get my channel. You know, I had a great YouTube channel going when I was at High Times. But when I left, I kind of lost access to it. So I've had to start over from scratch. And I'm trying to rebuild it back up. And, you know, it's the same thing with the podcasting. I, I had to learn myself. I had to buy myself the equipment and figure it out. And, and that's what I'm doing. And I hope to get to a point at some point where I'm – bringing in some money from my channel the way you are, because you're obviously very successful at it, man. Um, 
we're going to take one more quick break, uh, but uh, we'll be right back uh, with uh, Marcus uh, Bubbleman Richardson here on Blazing. You're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. This is Bobby Black, host of Blazin', here to talk to you about 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com. This is Bobby Black, host of Blazin', here to talk to you about 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast. All right, guys, and we are back here on Hash Month, Blazing Hash Month, uh, all throughout July. Uh, our guest this week is the man known as Bubble Man, the uh, great hash maker from Canada. His real name is Marcus Richardson. Marcus, how are you? Oh, doing good, man. Doing good. Still doing bong hits. All day long, from morning, <laughs> from morning, noon till night. It's uh, it's part of the thing, you know. It's why you're sort of a little bit more popular. And I was like, you know, guys like Lester Grinspoon and some like pretty esteemed people were coming in. People were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be doing bong rips. And I thought, you know, I think that bong rips is really an important part of the normalization that people shouldn't see someone take a bong rip. It shouldn't look like injecting oneself with heroin. It should just look like, oh, that guy's having a bong rip. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so before the break, we were talking about your uh, social media, your YouTube channel and Hash Church. And we didn't really get to talk too much about Hash Church. I want to de uh, delve into that a little bit. Um, I, when I was up uh, last year in uh, Canada uh, at the uh, Legends Valley Music Festival, uh, I was there with John Berfolo and a few guys, Remo and all those guys. And yeah. uh, we got to weigh in live from the event on Hash Church, and I thought it was so cool. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, in that have been in Hash Church that I obviously know from over the years, but I've never really uh, jumped in and participated that much. I think partly because I'm just, you know, even though I've been at High Times for so long and I love Hash, I'm just not super, super knowledgeable about all the technical stuff, as you know, and I, I think maybe I felt like I was, you know, I. but I guess go, you, people do go on there just to just to listen and learn, though, too, right? 
Well, that's just it. And I was talking about this with one of the panelists recently that was saying, you know, like, oh, sometimes I don't feel like I'm like pulling my weight. And I'm like, man, it's Hash Church is about an inclusive community. And there's more than just scientists and doctors in our community. And although they are, they're very impressive and they talk with interesting large words and it impresses us and we love the information, there's still incredible value for anyone that's been involved in the industry for 15 or 20 plus years to come and share their stories, you know, regardless of... Uh, uh, whether they're they're doing their PhD dissertation on cannabinoids and terpene modulation, been working a, a podcast or doing a grow or, or whatever it is, we're very inclusive. There's been many, many, many different people on Hash Church. It's really the channel got to a point where I felt like it was so much about me, this bubble man's world, how I built it, that I got to this point where I was like well, how could I make this more than about me? And I thought, well, you know, YouTube, they send you these milestones as you as you acquire, like, oh, you got 5 million hits, now you can do this. You got 10 million hits, now you can do this. And so I got one one day that said I could go live. I, they were like, you, we're, we want you to try our beta live. And Hash Church was a total, like, it was Sunday morning. I was raised Catholic and went to church on Sundays and Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, years later when I had my, my gallery in Vancouver, The Melting Point, uh, which was also Vancouver's first vapor lounge back in 2003, um, my friend had a store across the street and on Sundays we would go over and we would smoke his restaurant out, uh, close the doors and smoke out and we called it church. So when I got the milestone email from YouTube, I just thought, I'll call this Hash Church, I'll go live right now. And I went, I put it up on my Facebook link. All the people that came on were just people who followed me on Facebook. They weren't panelists in any way, shape or form. And then it grew into this thing. Every Sunday, it just kept happening. It's been 145 Sundays in a row. And wow. I've done it from like half a dozen countries. I've done it from airports. I've done it like from some pretty hairy places. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I would love to uh, come on the show uh, and, and talk about the podcast too. Uh, am I allowed to promote the podcast uh, episode that you're in if I come on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we always do. We always you can just be careful how you promote it, because one thing about Hash Church is that it's bigger than all of us and what we're doing. At the same time, we need to know what each other are doing. We need to know how to get in touch with each other through our social media. So I often, you know, during Hash Church, I'll ask people, hey, if you guys want to let everyone know how they can get in touch with you. If someone comes recently, a gentleman by the name of Peter came on and I would really advise you to get this guy on. He knows his shit. Uh, Soil uh, guy. He has a company called Soil Balance Pro and they're doing this bacteria, you know, keep the roots living, uh, really, really interesting stuff. Well, this gentleman came on and absolutely slayed Hash Church uh, last week when he was on. It was just really great information and he didn't really drop the name of his company too much. So you can, of course, the, and, we, and we insist that you do and, and of course I will invite you, but I always tell everyone just be careful how you go about doing it. For instance, you'll almost never hear me mention bubble bags on Hash Church. Sure, I, I understand. You don't want it to be a, a a big shill situation where people are trying to promote all their personal projects, right? And, especially and, for and panelists. Companies. Especially for panelists. You know, someone who's visiting one, uh, once, it's not as big of a deal. But for me, every day to be like, okay, just to let you guys all know that you can get your bubble bags at. Uh, it's just something that I. It was kind of like legends, you know, Bobby. Yeah. The thing that you guys had done in Amsterdam, and and you know, when when Sam and I sat and said, "How can we want to do a party? We want to do something. What would we do?" And we said, "Well, let's 
let's take let's do it during the high times cannabis cup because it, it couldn't be done any other time of year we wouldn't have those people to choose from and then it was simply find the people with the best hash who love hash and uh, inv- and l- allow them to buy a ticket to the event and then on top of that don't allow cell phones don't allow cameras and don't allow any self promotion of any kind yeah what an amazing night it was such yeah. a relief yeah, I know. And and you know what? I was so scared about going because I had heard so many, so many uh, cautions and warnings about things that I was so scared that I was like, it was almost like Fight Club. It's like the first rule of hash <laughs> legends is you don't talk about legends. And I, I was told that I wasn't allowed to write about it. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I wasn't allowed to tell anybody about it. And I was like so terrified as a writer. It's hard, you know, because you have an amazing experience. Your first instinct is to try to you know, log it and, and share it, you know? Uh, and so I was always very cautious about that. And I remember Danny Danko said to me, he's like, if you write a column about, you know, legends, you'll never be invited back again. And I was like, <laughs> I, that, I'd rather go and not write about it than write about it and never go again. But uh, I don't know how strict, uh, does legends still happen? I heard that it, maybe it happens at Spanibus now or? Yeah, we did one in Spanibus. You know, the original in, uh, reason we did that too was that, you know, there was some really serious hash aficionados that would come to that party and let's just say some of them were practicing civil disobedience a little stronger than the rest of us and so it was required from the first party because even do you remember steve hayes you must remember the nose yes of course of yeah course. the nose impossible to forget so steve's a great guy he came to yeah. the one of the first legends and i walked outside and he was outside all pale and i was like oh you got all whited out eh? you smoke too much and he's like he's like no man i looked around that room and saw who was in there Jesus Christ, do you know who's in there? And I'm like, yeah, dude, that's why we don't have any cameras, and that's why we're not writing about it. (laughs) Sure, and that's something that, as a High Times journalist, I am very sympathetic to. I mean, I can't tell you, I'm sure you know, you can guess, how many grow rooms and fields and things that we had had to go to interview people and and shoot photos and video in that we were not allowed to say where it was or who the person was, how many faces got blurred out in the magazine over the years. It's something that we've always been very, very aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so difficult too in that third party editor sort of experience where it's like it's just there's the people who are there and then there's the people who are editing it and it's like make sure that you know the rules when you edit this yeah because absolutely uh we're, we're, we're almost out of time but before we go i want to talk about uh, some of your other uh ventures because you did mention earlier about what you had going on down in jamaica and you also mentioned about the uh hash brand that you're uh coming out with so i want to talk talk a little about both of those yeah, well, Jamaica is uh, a company we started about four years ago called Cannabinoid Research and Development, and uh, I met some Jamaican partners uh, with myself and my my partner John Burfello, uh, and then I brought United Cannabis into the mix with uh, Ernie Blackman and Tony Verzura, and uh, they they do the prana. You definitely check them out at unitedcannabis.us. Yeah, I know I know Tony very well. He's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. He's a partner on many fronts now. So we brought them into Jamaica and uh, it's been going really nice. It's been, you know, the CLA, the Cannabis Licensing Authority has been taking their time, but slowly but surely we've got our applications in. We're awaiting permits for our fields to get planted. Uh, We've got uh, safety and efficacy set up with the University of West Indies. Uh, partnered up with Rastafarians and helping them out, trying to get Skunkman Sam to come to Jamaica and breed the lion back into the jungle with his 75,000 haze buys haze seeds. 
And uh, yeah, it's a wow, wow, wow. Like there's so many things that are going to happen in Jamaica when it finally happens. It's just been slow. So we don't talk about it a ton just because it takes so long in Jamaica. Uh, But the brand down in California, which I'm also working with Tony and his new company, Advesa. Uh, Tony, of course, uh, helps. uh, He was helping run the extraction lab down for Harborside. And uh, my brand was a part of that, as well as uh, Blue River Extracts, the terpene company, and Prana with his United Cannabis. And he finally got himself this huge 6,000-square-foot facility. And, I mean, it's super, super next level. Like, it is completely crazy when you start going through and looking at what he's got set up for his water and what he's got set up. Just basically everything is completely insane and, and very impressive. Um, all the ice makers, the walk-in freezers, it's basically the first facility that could really start. You know, this commercial thing when we're making for patients, it's got to be done a little bit differently than just the way we would do it when it's just sort of like for ourselves. You know, when you're selling it as a product that's that's actually for sale, people are going to want to know about all sorts of things. What 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 water are you using? What you know? How are you cleaning the the materials? And so we're very excited to release the brand. It's uh, basically releasing this year. We've done little releases here and there, but uh, it's going to be coming really soon. So check it out. This is what we got. We got a. F- a commercial five-filter RO system that runs into a UV sterilization before it hits ionic pH plate system that gives us a range from 3 to 12 pH so we can control the pH of the water, which allows us to control emulsification. Prior to a full cube ice maker and supply line to tanks, tanks stored inside the walk-in frostless freezer, freezer. it's considered lab-grade pure water and helps sustain the ice hardness, melt time, and agitation. We use UV sterilization wands and chambers for sterilizing bags, jars, tools, and utilize a pressurized steam system with the same water system with sterilization pouches. The walls are no VOC antimicrobial, antipathogen, anti-mold that meet hospital healthcare specifications, and the flooring is seamless hospital grade meant for surgical rooms, so no resin or mildew or microbes or even blood can stain it. We're taking this shit seriously. <laughs> Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's a mouthful for sure. But uh, <laughs> but it sounds it sounds amazing, man. I, I can't wait to try it. I hope I get to smoke some with you at some point. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, and uh, I don't know In when Jamaica. I'm going to Jamaica. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. You know, uh, 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 our travel company. My wife and I have a travel company called Higher that we started uh, last year, and we're we just partnered with a really beautiful property down in Jamaica. So we're probably going to be heading down there uh, uh, a little more into the coming years. So uh, hopefully we'll get to hook up with you down there. And I'm betting I even know the property that you're going to. Uh, it's the same one that Re- uh, Remo's uh, involved with. It's uh, Coral Cove. Yeah, great, great property. Awesome. Yeah, I might be. Uh, well, I they want to do an event with me down there. I, I haven't been able to fit it in, but uh, we'll definitely make sure that we work with your guys' travel company when we make it happen. Yeah, that would be awesome. We would love to work with you. We have a, a, a higher health retreat my wife put together, like a holistic uh, cannabis wellness retreat going on in September down there, which is going to be great. Uh, but we'd love to work with you and, and help you set something up. That would be fantastic, man. Yeah, we definitely should link up there for sure. Absolutely. Such a you great know, place. Absolutely. You know, and you know, the other thing is, uh, I really, uh, I, I should hit you up for, for some, for some bubble bags, man, because, uh, you know, I used to have a set back when I worked at high times and somehow when I got, you know, left and moved out and whatever, uh, they got lost and I don't know what happened to them. And I was really bummed because, uh, my wife and I were looking to make you know, make some little personal medical, uh, hash for ourselves, but, uh, you know, we'll definitely have to order some bags from you. Dude, I'll send me your email and I'll, or your address and I'll have my manager send you guys some bags. 
Cool, man. Well, that would be awesome. Well, we look forward to I remember uh, back in the day at High Times, we did a whole uh, demo with your bags and videotaped it and, and did a whole uh, thing for the website about it. And man, I was just watching the whole process and just getting such a thrill out of it. It was really cool. Very exciting thing for all of us to learn as cannabis aficionados and, uh, you know, bubble bags that isolating those pure gland heads, it really, really, you know, that and the release of, of BHO because bubble bags and BHO both released in 1999 and that was, that was beginning at the beginning of the concentrate era. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm happy that I was at, I was at high times at the time to chronicle the rise of dabs and BHO. It was an exciting time to, uh, to be a cannabis journalist and, uh, the exciting times continue, my friend, there's, there's way more excitement coming here in the U S uh, as California prepares to go full legal and, and the country continues its wave of, you know, uh, change. It's going to be real exciting times. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I'm very, very excited. I've been telling people for a long time, and this isn't a diss on those who have been willing to be a part of this industry through civil disobedience and facing um, criminal charges in jail, but that really kept some amazing people out of this industry. And I think when everyone can decide whether they want to be a part of an industry or not, you're really going to pull the best of the best. And I'm excited to see what some of those people are going to pull off in the next decade. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I look forward to trying your hash and to seeing you again, hopefully soon at a, at a cannabis event or, or wherever, man. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being part of Hash Month here on Blazing. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And may the full melt bless your bowl sooner than later. <laughs> All right, brother. Be sure to follow me on social media, Twitter at Bobby Black, Facebook and Instagram at Bobby Black 420. Stay tuned next week for more from Hash Month here on Blazin'. Until then, this is Bobby Black saying, Blaze on. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.